Well, good morning. I'd like for us to use our imaginations this morning. And imagine that you're living in the kingdom of Judah throughout this whole message. Imagine what it would be like to live in the kingdom of Judah. And I'll set the stage. The year is 722 B.C. Now, off the top of your head, that might not mean a whole lot, but we're going to get into it. So imagine we're living in this time. And I love when I'm looking at Scripture to insert myself, not as a way of saying, well, I would do it better or worse or whatever else, but it would be, what am I doing? What would I do in this situation? What would I do? And you pray to the Lord and say, Lord, <laughs> I hope I do or don't do what we learn here today, but just imagine what it would be like to live in this time. And I want to put a map up <clears throat> just for a moment. That's the right one. The purple area is... This is the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And Assyria is one of the major nations of the world to have conflict with Israel. And this purple area is during the time of the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser. He reigned from 745 B.C. to 727 B.C. The purple area is the time of the beginning of his reign. During this time, we have King Jotham in, in Judah, as well as King Ahaz in Judah. Now, what happens is Assyria begins to expand its borders. And by the time of the next king, Sargon, they've expanded to that green area. And in a matter of... From 745 to 727, when Sargon takes power in 722, their empire has expanded in 23 years to this border. They've conquered Babylon, as you can see. They've conquered Damascus, Syria, and so forth. Now, I said, we live in Judah, which, as you know, is down there towards the south. It's even labeled on the map. What are you thinking living in this time period? Okay. King Ahaz in Judah at this point becomes what we would consider a vassal state. Now, a vassal state is indirect leadership. He is still able to be king in Jerusalem, yet he pays tribute to the Assyrians so that they will be allowed to be on the throne. Ahaz also aligns with Tiglath-Pileser as he comes down from Assyria and goes into the borders of Syria and Damascus, Ahaz from Judah says, I'm going to align with Assyria and help him fight against the Syrians because the Syrians were common enemies, right? We'll make an alliance. Well, this is one of those things that's a mistake. God judges or says to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah that this alliance should not have happened. And we talked several weeks back about the the danger of wrong alliances, this is one of those. If you look at Isaiah chapter 8, actually, no, well, let's see the reason why. 2 Kings verse, chapter 16, verses 9 through 10. The king of Assyria hearkened unto King Ahaz, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, carried the people of it to Ker and slew Rezin, 
And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest, the, to the, sent to Urijah the priest the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it according to the workmanship thereof. So here we go. This is a bad thing. He's in Damascus visiting with the king of Assyria, who's a wicked king. He's a pagan, as were most kings in the area at this time. But he sees this altar, and he sees it, and he likes it. And he sends the pattern. In other words, he takes, he tells his priest to take a copy of this pagan altar in Damascus and disperse it in the nation of Judah. So he allows the continuance of idolatry through this alliance and through this relationship. Now, of course, God is not going to be happy with this, and he was not. And he, through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 8, verses 7 through 8, Isaiah tells Ahaz what's going to happen. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up upon them the waters of the river strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and he shall come up over his channels and go all over his banks. Here's a key port, key part. He shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck and to the stretching out of his wings. Shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this is all under Tiglath-Pileser, that, that purple section, and he's beginning to expand into the green area now. And now Sargon the second comes to place. Now, keep in mind that prophecy... prophesy prophecy from Isaiah was to the kingdom of Judah. And you may be thinking, well, I know Sunday school, the kingdom of Judah was overtaken by Babylon, not Assyria, right? But if you look at that map again, you'll see that they expanded well beyond the borders of Israel and into Judah. And one of the reasons why is this alliance with Ahaz and their idolatry. But now Sargon II comes to power. He was that green section. In 722, thereabouts, Assyria completely conquers the kingdom to the north, Israel. They, cap they capture the capital city of Samaria and carry away many of the Israelites into captivity. The difference between Assyria and some of the other nations who conquered was the Assyrians took the people out of their home nation and dispersed them so that they couldn't stay together and perhaps rise up and cause rebellion. If you know what the Romans did, the Romans set up little governors and let the people kind of stay where they were. And as long as they didn't get too out of line, they let them kind of do whatever they were able to do. And if you know from the time of Jesus, we had guys like Pilate, we had Felix and Festus, who were kind of all there to keep the people in line, but the people were able to live in their homes. Well, the Assyrians didn't want that. They took them out to keep them from causing rebellions and so forth. And, and so it dispersed them throughout the nations. And that's what happened to Israel in the northern kingdoms. They were dispersed. Now, after the fall of the northern kingdom, the kings of Judah, mainly Ahaz, who was the father of Hezekiah and Hezekiah in the first few years of his reign, said, well, wait a minute, our neighbors are weak. We're going to expand our borders and go a little further north and get back some of the lands that they had lost. And they begin to push a little further north. Now, keeping in mind that 
they're still paying tribute to Assyria. They want to extend in their influence in this area. Now, why is this area so important? It's just a small little patch of land. But if you look at that map, can we throw that map back up one more time? Well, it's good land because it's God's land, but look where it is. It's, it's a main route from Egypt to the north. It's a main route from Egypt to Babylon in, in the east. It's also many ports, including Gaza and Tyre, all main ports into the Mediterranean. Very important area. So that's why there's always so much conflict here. And the kingdoms and the king in Judah wants to expand his borders and take back some of those lands in Philistia, like Gaza and so forth, and Ekron to get those ports back so that they had control over that areas, those areas. It was that bridge between Egypt and the north and the west. It was a very crucial, strategically important piece of land. So Assyria is not going to like this very much. They don't. And they begin to push further south. Now, even worse, what happens, not worse, but what happens next is King Hezekiah, who's a righteous king, he starts to drive out all of the idols and so forth and pushes back. And he says, I'm not going to pay tribute to this pagan king anymore. And he stops paying the tribute, which now leads us to 705 approximately B.C. And we have a guy by the name of Sennacherib come to power. And hopefully that name sounds a little familiar. King Sennacherib is now the king of Assyria. And Hezekiah says, enough is enough. The line is drawn here. No further. We're not going to pay anymore. Not only that, they're pushing and he's helping these area cities, surrounding cities, rebel against and fight against Assyria. And Sennacherib says, no, we're not going to tolerate this. So now he begins to push Further south, and this is an this is an important piece of air, history here because at this same time, Assyria is dealing with the Babylonians in Babylon. They're rising up as well and trying to rebel because we know, and we know from history, the next premier kingdom to come to power would be the Babylonians. So, Assyria has their kind of divided front. They're putting down a rebellion in Babylon. They're trying to hold the the southern area here and get into Egypt as far as they can. And so Hezekiah thinks this is a good opportunity to rebel and to help with the rebellion. And then this comes to this whole point and the, the message today, this is a lot of background, but the message today is salvation in the day of trouble. And it brings us to this critical piece in Israel's history and Hezekiah's reign for sure where Sennacherib is now in not only just holding the borders, but he's invading Judah. He goes to Latius. He goes to another key port, some strategic cities that are kind of on the path to Jerusalem, and he starts setting his armies towards Jerusalem. And if you go towards Jerusalem, you, you take Jerusalem, you take the entire nation. And so Hezekiah realizes that, that there's trouble here. And this is what we would call the siege or, yeah, the siege of Jerusalem, which comes in Isaiah. You read about it in Isaiah. You read about it in 2 Chronicles. You also read about it in 2 Kings. So it's covered. It's a crucial pot port where it's covered in all three books. There's three players, if you will, in this little thing. There's Hezekiah. There's Isaiah. 
and there's Sennacherib and his spokesperson who goes by the name of Reb Shaka. And we're going to talk about all three of these. So first of all, Hezekiah. He's the king. He's initiated widespread religious changes. He's driven out all the idols from the land. There's, there's, there's a certain amount of revival in the area and, and actually a great revival actually that comes. The testimony of Hezekiah's life is 2 Chronicles 31, 21. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God and in the law and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart and prospered. Also 2 Kings 18, verse 5. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. Pastor Bailey, in his commentary on the kings of Judah, says that Hezekiah is one of the most precious sons of Zion who ever lived, which is quite a testimony as well. He put in order the tabernacle. He drove out the idols. 2 Chronicles 30, verse 26. <clears throat> Excuse me. Says there was, so there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there was not like in Jerusalem. Hezekiah honored the word of the Lord. He is credited with compiling chapters 25 through 29 of the book of Proverbs, even when he was. Building out and repairing the, the tabernacle, he found these extra Proverbs that were written and compiles them and puts them together. So he honored the word of the Lord. He honored worship. Second Chronicles 29, verses 27 through 28. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. And when the burnt offerings began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel, and all the congregation worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpets sounded. And it all, all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. So here we have the song of the Lord going up, worshipping in spirit and in truth. Hezekiah was a great king and a righteous king. And even though he began to reign at only 25 years of age, it seems like he had had a tremendous experience with the Lord and wanted to do what was right in the land. And he was a very wise king as well by choosing to expand his borders and get back these key cities as well. Another one was Isaiah. Isaiah was the main prophet during this time period. He started his ministry during the reign of King Uzziah, and he lasted all the way until uh, King Manasseh, who is Hezekiah's son, approximately 64 years, he, he, he prophesied, to mainly to Judah, but also to Israel in the north as well. The other party, King Sennacherib, as I mentioned, this was a kind of a, a, an appropriate time for Hezekiah to rebel, if you will, against Sennacherib because he was divided by fighting in Babylon and took advantage uh, of that. However, when this happened, Sennacherib had, was basically done with the Babylonians and really put all his forces down into Judah and Jerusalem. So it was a big, the big deal. <clears throat> Rabshakeh, who was the spokesman of Sennacherib, he's an Assyrian official 
representing Sennacherib, he calls for Jerusalem to surrender. He stands at the gates and promises to spare their lives if they will just listen to his words, ignore Hezekiah, ignore the Lord, and do what Sennacherib tells you. He told Hezekiah not to trust in Egypt, not to trust in any of his allies, not to trust in his God, but just to make an alliance with Sennacherib. These are the, the main players. Now let's get to the actual siege. They come with a tremendous force. Um, at least 185,000, but, but more than that. For certain more than that, because they have conquered or sieged Laishish, and they took Laishish, which was a, a fortified city to the south and to the west of Jerusalem, on its way up to Jerusalem. They took it in less than a month. Okay, now what's a siege? A siege was a way of taking a city. They would sometimes surround it or enclose it from any kind of help from the outside, meaning they couldn't get any food, any water. They couldn't get in. They couldn't get out. They were stuck there. And what they tried to do, usually, was starve them out <laughs> because they would run out of food eventually, and then they'd have to give up. Or they would get them all into the city, and they would have siege, siege weapons where they would throw boulders and all of those old school movies we've seen on TV where they're launching trebuchets into the city. But the main thing was starving them out to get them out. And they took Laishish with this tremendous force in less than a month, according to what the historian said. So while this is happening, we have three things that the people did, that, the king, that Judah did. First, they looked to Egypt. Israel, or Isaiah 30, verses 1 through 2. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, that take counsel but not of me, and that cover with a covering but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. Israel and Judah had a tendency to trust in Egypt. They did this many, many, many times. <laughs> Even in their journey, they were always looking back, oh, to go back to Egypt. Now here, they're seeking a strategic alliance with Egypt because they needed help and so forth, and that was their tendency. Hezekiah clearly did not have an easy time with his people that he was reigning in. He was a righteous king. He was doing all that he thought he should, but there was still this push to get this alliance with Egypt. Now, what do we know? Egypt signifies the world, right? Egypt signifies going back into the world after being taken out, after Passover and so forth. People even started wearing Egyptian clothing to try to look like the Egyptians and so forth. So the leader is apprehended, but the people were content to settle with that lower standard. They were attempting to trust in political alliances rather than trusting in the Lord. Egypt had a huge army. They, had, they were known for their chariots and, and their horses and their cavalry. And that leads us to the next part. They trusted in horses and chariots. They, they looked to Egypt. They looked to those horses. They looked to the might of their army. Isaiah 31, 1 through 3. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses. 
and trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring evil and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the help of them that walk in iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horse flesh and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helps shall fall, and he that is holden shall fall, and they shall all fail together. Horses, chariots, horsemen. Speaking of our own strength, our own abilities, we've got a big enough army, we can take care of this. We can align with Egypt. They've got a big enough army, they can help us. Because the Assyrians were known for a very large cavalry. Egypt was also known for their chariots and their horses and their mighty power. So Judah says, well, let's align with Egypt and maybe we can even out the score a bit. And they look to the chariots and the horses instead of God. We as human beings are prone to, if we're not careful, trusting in our own means of some sort. Chariots were a very advanced form of technology back then. But what do we trust in as humans today? We look to our own technology, our own way of doing things, our own strength. Instead of going to God and leaning and trusting in his mercy. Psalm 33, 17 says, The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of our God. Psalm 20, verse 7. Now, what's the big deal about horses? Like I said, they signify our own strength. They signify uh, this trust in man, our own power, our own, our own abilities, if you will. They give a, a, a sense of pride to it. To the point where it's even in one of the laws of the kings from Deuteronomy 17 that a king should not accumulate a vast amount of horses because of the false sense of security it gives you. And you can find that in Deuteronomy 17, verse 19. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said unto you, you shall never return that way again. Looking to our own strength. So we see two things right away. During this time, when the enemy is invading from the north, the people are going back and looking to Egypt. They're looking to alliances. They're looking to the horses, to the chariots, to their strength. And the Lord is saying that that's not what we should do. Thirdly, 2 Kings 18, 13 through 16. Now, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib finally comes to Assyria against all the fenced cities of Judah. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lashish. So he's in Lashish now, that city south and west of Jerusalem that was a very strong and fortified city. It was protecting the path to Jerusalem. So this is where the Assyrians are. And Hezekiah says, verse 14, I have offended you. Return from me. That which you put on me, I will bear. So he has said, I'm not paying your tribute anymore. But now he says, oh, 
I realize what I've done here. You've demolished his, one of his main cities in Latius and says, I've offended you. What you have told me to do, I will do. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. He says, all right, that's what you owe me to get me to leave. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Israel. So they're looking to Egypt. They're looking to the world, alliances. They're looking to horses, human strength, chariots. And now they're looking to gold. Let me buy them off. We can do that as well, can't we? Big bank account, you can still feel you can feel pretty confident that more zeros are in your after your bank account. Not a lot can go wrong. According to our own thinking, right? There's plenty that can go wrong. <laughs> no matter how big your bank account is. We have a tendency to look to money for security, don't we? And that's exactly what they were doing here. Hezekiah says, I'll pay you. I messed up. Here's your money. Just leave us alone. But what is what, what do we know happened? Hezekiah Snecherib took his money and then still kept going towards Jerusalem. The Bible records Hezekiah paid him 300 talents of silver. This is a tremendous sum. He had to desecrate the temple to get it. And even after that payment was made, Sennacherib renewed his assault on Jerusalem. Now we come to the day of trouble. Sennacherib surrounds the city, sends Rebshaka to the walls as a messenger, and he addresses the soldiers. He addresses all of the people across the walls, and he begins to speak to them. First of all, he mocks them. He mocks them for trusting in Egypt. He says in 2 Kings 18, uh, let's read verse 21. Now behold, you trust upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt, of which if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all who trust in him. He's saying, you trust in this bruised reed, Egypt, to help you? You think they're going to help you against us? He mocks them even for trusting in horses. Verse 23. Now therefore, I pray thee, verse 23, 2 Kings 18, Give pledges to my Lord, King of Assyria. He's All he's saying is align with us, pledge your allegiance to us, and I will deliver you 2,000 horses if you were able to even have riders to sit on them. He's basically saying you don't even have enough riders. If I gave you 2,000 horses, you don't have enough to put, to, to put riders on them. So he's mocking them for trusting in horses. He's also mocking them. He also mocks them for trusting in God and then mocks God directly. <clears throat> Second Kings 18, 28 through 30. Rob Shaka stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and spake, Hear the words of the great king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of king of Assyria. Read also verses 31. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me, and buy a present 
and come unto me, and then eat ye every man of his own vine and every one of his own fig tree, and drink every one waters out of his own cistern. He says, don't listen to Hezekiah. Listen to me, and you'll be able to eat and drink, and you'll be happy. Verse 33, have any of the gods of any of the other nations prevailed against the king of Assyria? And then he lists a long list, which we're not going to read, of all of the gods that the king of Assyria has already defeated. None of these gods have had any effect. Do you think your God is any different than any of these other gods? Now we know the true story. Have any of the gods of the nations of Israel, or the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? He basically says, I've conquered everywhere I've gone. No other God has been able to stop me. But the people held their peace, verse 36, and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, don't answer him. This is an important lesson. We should never engage the enemy in debate. Right? Hezekiah says, don't say a word. We should never engage the enemy in a debate. But what happens, the next verses come up. 19, 2 Kings 19, 2 and 3. We'll go to verse 3. Hezekiah went to Isaiah. He sends a message to Isaiah and says, this is a day of trouble and of rebuke and blasphemy for the children are come to the birth and there is not strength to bring forth. He's sending a message to Isaiah saying, Help! <laughs> Help! This is a day of trouble. When your city's surrounded, you've got someone speaking in your own language saying, You guys are all going down. Come in align with us, and we'll make it easier on you. Your God's not going to stop us. No one other gods have ever stopped us. And Hezekiah says, Help! Isaiah, in verses 6 and 7, reassures Hezekiah. Thus says the Lord, Be not afraid of the words that you've heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me, which they were doing. Your God's no different. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and he shall return to his own land. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. This is what Isaiah says. He's going to return and he's going to fall by the sword in his own land. He's going to go the same way he came and leave. But that doesn't stop Sennacherib. He goes from Lachish to Libna. He's moving even closer with the other giant portion of his army. And he's already sieged Jerusalem at the same time. And now Rabshakeh, in, in addition to words, he writes letters. A letter campaign, a smear campaign in the, in the media if you will, the print media, and sends it into the city for all to read. And he's saying, you speak, let not the God in whom you trust, chapter 19, verse 10 and 11, let not thy God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by destroying them utterly. And you think you'll be delivered? So he's writing this down now and sending it throughout the city. But what does Hezekiah do? Finally, he looks to the Lord. He takes that letter, verse 14. He reads it 
he goes up into the house of the Lord and he spreads it before the Lord. It says, Lord, verse, look at what these people are saying. Look at what they're saying about you. Look at what they're saying about your great name and your great people. Verse 17 through 18, 2 Kings 19. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now look at verse 19. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hands, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the God, the Lord God, even thou only. They don't turn to Egypt anymore. They don't turn to the horses anymore. They don't turn to the gold anymore. He takes that letter, puts it out before the Lord, and says, look at what they're saying. Yes, it's true. They've destroyed everything else in their path. But those gods are made of wood. You are the true and living God. Save us. Show all of the other nations who the real God is. He's looking to the Lord. And the Lord responds. He's looking to the Lord in that day of trouble. He says to Isaiah, this is a day of trouble. And it truly was. Imagine living during this time as a citizen. Imagine living this during this time if you were Hezekiah or maybe Isaiah. Imagine what that pressure would be like. You see literally cities falling by the wayside. And here you are in Jerusalem hearing these messages, seeing the paper, the social media campaign, if you will, of the time. Imagine what that would be like. And all your, some of your friends are even going to Egypt. Some, some left to go live in Egypt. They're wearing clothes doing other things to get out. i got to get out of here. But Hezekiah goes to the Lord and says, show the world who the true God is. Right? Show the world who the true God is. Don't let him get away with saying these things about you and your people. So in verses 20 through 34, we're not going to read them all. Isaiah responds with a long message of encouragement to Hezekiah and says, your prayers have been answered. Read 32 and 34. 2 Kings 19, 32 through 34. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, concerning the kings of, king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with his shield, nor cast a bank against it. By the way he came, by the same shall he return. And shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Look at the blessing that the right living of David, hundreds of years later, still God is saying, for David's sake, I will save this city. Now Judah, they weren't living great. There was idolatry. Hezekiah had to overturn a lot of stuff. And the... Assyria coming into Jerusalem or into Judah was of their own fault. Ahaz made that alliance, remember? And God says, okay, because of that, because the idolatry that you brought in, they're going to come in. So they didn't stop at the border. They penetrated and took a 
large chunk of Judah as well. But God says, they will not enter this city. This is my city. And this is David's city. And for my sake and his sake, they will not enter this city of Jerusalem. So what happens? We all know the story. 2 Kings 19, 37 It came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt in Nineveh, which was the capital city. And it came to pass as he was worshiping the house of his god Nisroch, that Adramelech and Sherazar, his sons, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Esherdadon, his son, reigned in his stead. Exactly what the Lord said was going to happen, happened. He's going to return the same way he came. He's going to die by the sword in his lone country. And one angel of the Lord slays 185,000. Not one arrow was tossed. Not one trebuchet launched. But God sent one angel. And look at the, dis- the destruction that one angel can do. And this always gets me. One angel can do 185,000 in one night like that. And we already have a two-to-one advantage, right? Two, one-third of the angels went away with Lucifer, leaving two-thirds behind. We have a two-to-one advantage, and one angel can do that. Not to mention the king of kings and lord of lords and captain of the hosts is in charge of the army. We truly should be, need to be, looking to the Lord for help. Hezekiah laying it out. Lord, don't let him get away with saying these things about you. Throw that second map up if you don't mind, Barb. Here is the end result of the Assyrian Empire. And Babylon after this is about to rise up. But look it, and you can't really see it very well on this particular screen. The green area extends all the way into Egypt, and that one little yellow area around Judah and Jerusalem remains independent. They never got them. They never got into that little area, despite taking over a large portion of the known area at that time. God says, you will not get in my city. You will not get in my city. So we have a tendency in the day of trouble to do many different things. We can look to the world. We can look to go back to the world. We can look for some sort of natural humanistic solution. We can look to our own strength, our own pride, our own abilities, our own thinking. We can even look to gold for security to buy our way out of it or trust in our own way. But the only way to victory in the day of trouble, the only way to salvation in the day of trouble is to look to God. He knows the true solution. In this case, he just sent an angel and took care of everything. In other cases, he caused it to rain so the ground would be soft and all those chariots sunk into the ground and they couldn't move and their advantage was nullified. In other areas, he gave other things to give victory to in different types of battle. But here, he just sent an angel and says, Hezekiah, you don't have to do anything. I'm just going to take care of it. What an amazing story. What an amazing account of how the Lord our God can meet us in the day of trouble. All we have to do is look to him. Don't look to the world. Don't look to our own natural means. Don't look to our finances or money. 
Now, all of you know, the money's good. It is good to have intellect, but we need the true wisdom from the Lord, as we heard about last week. We need to be able to use that money for the right things. It's not going to save us. It's not going to buy our way out of anything. The only way to victory in the day of trouble is looking to the Lord. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for these words. <clears throat> we thank you, Lord, for this example that you've given us of how you provide victory during these times of trouble. And Lord, we ask that you would guide us. As we approach difficult times, maybe we're already in a difficult time. Lord, help us to look to you and you alone, not to look to the world or our finances or our own strength or our own mind, but Lord, to look to you and you alone. Lord, we know you are the source of victory, and we pray that you would lead us and guide us in that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day, everybody. We'll see you next week.